Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hello, my name is Thomas Nygren. I write about Liverpool for LFCSV.se. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Smith. I'm a football journalist and I support Burnley. All right, thanks so much for joining us today, guys. Uh, up first, we're going to start with uh, Arsenal because they lost to Chelsea in their second match, so no wins yet. Slow start there uh, to the Unai Emery era. Do you think there's anything behind these losses that will project concerningly for Arsenal, or do you put these down to other factors like how difficult uh, their starting fixtures were, the fact that the manager is still betting in, etc.? Uh, well, I think it's way too early to say anything about how Emery will do at Arsenal. He's, uh, he's coming into a team who's had the same manager for decades and uh, of course he needs time to make them play the way he wants. If you look at their schedule for the first games, they can't be really can't really be surprised with, to be without any points because they've played City at home and Chelsea away and they are two very diff- difficult games. And um, of course the World Cup probably made it even more difficult for Emery with uh, many players coming back late and uh, don't get the chance to to make the team play together more. Um, there are some worrying signs in the defense, but um, I think it would probably be better in time. There are a few new players at the uh, back four, and uh, they need time to adapt as well. And um, we still haven't seen uh, Leno, and it will be interesting to see if he can make them look a bit more solid. Uh, to me, it's more worrying that a star player like Mesut Özil doesn't really look to care. But um, maybe that has um, something to do with the few rough months he's had after the World Cup and we know what he can do when he when he wants to play football so if he can get Özil going I think they, they will um, get some more points and then um, I think that they are in a situation where Liverpool have been for, for a few years when uh, where they are the sixth best team in the league and um, they have problems signing the really best players I don't think that any of their summer signings would have been considered good enough for a team like Arsenal maybe five years ago and uh, Emery has a tough job going forward but uh, I hope that Arsenal is smart enough to to give him time and don't make a loss against a team like Manchester City a bigger issue than uh, necessary there there is a lot to be done for Emery but I think we will see them doing better once he finds out which players he can build his team around if you look at their squad I don't think that we can expect them to finish higher than sixth and um, then maybe Emery can build on that from next for next season, but um, today I don't think we can. I don't think there is too much to be said about them being without any points after playing City and Chelsea. It will be more interesting to see the upcoming games. If they lose uh, one or two more games, then Emery will have a uh, bigger issues. 
Yeah, I agree with a lot of what what Thomas has said there, and that it's extremely early, and it's such a big change for Arsenal to to have anyone other than Arsene Wenger in the dugout. It seems odd not to see him there, and I think the the thing for me is that it doesn't seem to have changed. If if Arsenal were losing to the top four rivals, there should be Champions League contenders at least. If they were losing to those teams in a different way, then you'd at least be able to say, well, Unai Emery's doing this, it's going to take time because they're adapting. But they're losing in the same ways. It's a soft centre, they look good going forward, they create lots of chances and don't take them. But the soft centre, you can't concede a goal like the goal that Morata scored for Chelsea. You can't concede those goals. It's absolutely amateur stuff. And teams will punish them for that. I think the point about recruitment stands up. I think Aubameyang on paper an excellent signing, but they don't seem to have the players around him to to fit what would work for him. Mkhitaryan obviously had the combination with him at Dortmund. Bundesliga is a bit of a different league. I, I don't know if that's going to work in the Premier League. They've got to work out how they're going to get Mkhitaryan and Ozil in the same team. I don't know how they're going to do that with it functioning because Emery seems to want his team to press high. Neither of those two lads are going to do it. So he's going to have to bite the bullet and either drop them and stick with the tactic or come up with a new plan. I don't think that tactical plan is going to work with those players. I don't think they'll do the job either because they they can't or they just won't. So I think a, a reckoning is already coming for Unai Emery and it is two games in and they've played two of the better teams in the league but it's just same old Arsenal for me and <laughs> it it doesn't seem to be progressing mm. and yes it's extreme it's extremely early days and it's harsh to say that and most teams are going to lose to City and most teams will probably lose to Chelsea as well but there's not really any positive signs for me so far the fact that he's sticking with Petr Cech and asking him to play out from the back when he's incredibly uncomfortable doing it no matter what he said after the game last weekend you can say that he's enjoying it but you only have to watch him try and play the ball out he can't do it he can't do it why spend 20 million on a goalkeeper and then you're going to ask Petr Cech to try and play out from the back it doesn't make any sense um so yeah I think that early signs are worrying I think if you're an Arsenal fan um, the benefit for them is that last season we saw the gap between the top six and the rest was absolutely vast. There's not really any signs for me in the early couple of weeks of the season that that's going to be any different. I think Arsenal would have to be absolutely terrible not to finish sixth at worst. I don't think there's anyone ready to breach that gap. So they can take a long-term view and say this is the guy we're going to stick with. Um, but I don't know. I'm not convinced. Obviously, he's got a very good record at Sevilla, winning three Europa Leagues in a row. That's outstanding. But this is a guy who didn't win League Earn with PSG in his first year there. And mm. if you can't win the league with PSG and all their resources, it suggests to me that you're maybe not an elite manager. And I think Arsenal really needed an elite manager to get them back to where they think they should be and where, really, they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the maybe the one encouraging sign if you're an Arsenal fan is that they fought back from two nil down. It, it wasn't great the way that they went two nil down, but in the past they may have just folded there 
and they did fight back. But I agree. I think the, there are a lot of the same underlying issues. And then you add on, and I hate to bring this up. No, I don't. Um, that they struggled so much on the road last season. And Unai Emery, his career splits between home results and away, and away results are pretty stark. And that he struggles away from home. So they went out and brought in somebody that has a similar issue to what they struggled with last season. Um, again, very, very early days, but just figured it would be good to get you guys' take on this. Um, the rundown was written before the Manchester United match, so we won't dive into uh, Jose Mourinho too much. We'll just hit this with a yes or no. Do you think Jose Mourinho makes it past Christmas? No. Jamie? I agree. No, I'll be really surprised if he gets to probably November. Yeah. Well, on Christmas. Seems like he's imploding very, very fast. It's almost like, is he trying to do it in the third season? Is this just a trend? It's yeah, very... It's, yeah, it's a bit it's of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point, isn't it? Everyone's yeah. caught on to the fact that it goes wrong in the third season. And, and then, like, we all joked about it. In the third season. And now it's happening? Yeah, it's, it's very strange indeed. All right, on to the next actual thing that we... Uh, uh, we're going to discuss, which is the La Liga deal with uh, relevant sports, which is going to see them play competitive matches in the USA. Um, are you concerned that the Premier League is going to follow suit in this playing competitive matches abroad uh, thing? Do you think that's coming? And if so, how far away do you think it is? Uh, well, uh, we've seen this in other sports for a few years now. Uh, the National Hockey League often starts their season with games in, in Europe. And I know that there were two teams playing in, in uh, Stockholm last yeah. year. Uh, so there is no surprise that football is following in that pattern. Uh, I hope that this is just a desperate move from La Liga to move closer to Premier League in uh, money and global interest and so, because I really don't want to go to Stockholm and uh, watch Liverpool play. I want to go to England to watch Liverpool play. Uh, I don't want to see them play in any other big city outside of England if it's not Champions League. But uh, if this is a, will be a success for La Liga, I fear that it's a question of when and not if Premier League will play competitive games in other countries. Uh, it's all about the money, really. Uh, but I, I put my hope on the, in the history of English football, because uh, even though the money in the league has changed the game, many things tend to stay the same. They uh, said no to VAR uh, when, uh, when other leagues wanted to use it, and... Uh, they still play a lot of games during the winter, Christmas, New Year's Eve, when other leagues doesn't play. So um, I do hope that uh, FA understand how important the history of the game is. But um, today there is more money in TV and advertising than ever before. And um, to make the market even bigger is, of course, in the interest of the investors. So uh, maybe the friendlies that we've seen in the United States in the past seasons is just a, it's just a start. And I... I fear that we will see bigger games, competitive games in uh, in America and maybe in Asia and so on in the future because it's all about making money. And uh, England is uh, it's, it's, has a, it's quite a big country, but there are bigger countries and uh, bigger markets out there. And uh, if they want the league to be even bigger than today, they need to, they need to look abroad. And uh, I hope they don't, but I fear they will. Yeah, I think it's. it seems like it's something that is probably going to happen at some point in the future. I don't know how long it's going to take, because um, there's a lot of important people who are going to have to be convinced. But it seems like this trend is growing, and I think it's going to be very difficult to stop. Um, it's about 10 years ago that this idea was floated with the Premier League, 
they were calling it Game 39 at that point. And there was such fierce opposition to this idea. I think the idea was that every team would play one game abroad. Um, so there'd be effectively an extra game week and they'd take all the games around the world. Um, I don't think I don't know if they got as far as deciding whether it would count properly to the league table or if it would be calculated in a slightly different way. But people were very serious about this idea. This was about 2008, 2009. And there was such strong opposition to it from from fans and clubs and even the media that it just didn't really get off the ground. Um, since then, though, we've seen things like the International Champions Cup where we've had the Manchester Derby played in America. We've had Tottenham big games. Crown champions, which has been a while. In yeah, well, at least there'll be something to put in the trophy cabinet of the new stadium if it ever gets finished. Um, <laughs> we'll so, get there. So we, we've seen, and the ICC was was its biggest format yet this season, wasn't it? There were so many teams um, played in so many different destinations. They had it in Nice. They had it in Austria. They had put games absolutely all over the place of the ICC. So it seems like that's been maybe a bit of a bridge to test the water to see what would happen with these games. I think what happened with the ICC this year, though, was because it was so soon after the World Cup, it was days after the World Cup final, teams like United were just decimated their squad. So it was basically youth teams playing the ICC, and I don't know if the interest level was really there. Um, so the fact that they could sell... Manchester Derby, play it in wherever, Pasadena in front of 100,000 people, play it in Michigan, 110,000 people. I think it's a very attractive option to a lot of people. Um, I think La Liga's testing of this will be watched very carefully by the Premier League, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if these sorts of ideas and proposals start coming up again. Whether fans and clubs and the media can see it off for a second time, I think is a really big question. The key for me is sort of retaining the integrity of the league. The whole point of a league is that it's completely fair. You play 19 games at home, 19 games away. If you're adding extra games onto that, I don't see how it fits into the league. It's something else for me. So they can call it something else. They can make it a cup competition rather than a league competition. But I think the selling point of the Premier League is partly the support, isn't it? It's the passion of the the fans that go and watch the game and it's the packed stadiums and it's how involved everyone gets. Yes, you can make a lot of money by taking these big games abroad, but I don't know if you then get that. I don't know. <laughs> I understand that clubs like Liverpool have fans all over the world. Clubs like Man City and Chelsea and Tottenham and Man United, they've got fans everywhere now and it's good for them to be able to see their team. But the Premier League is the English League and for me, it shouldn't even be on the table as an idea. Yeah, and when you bring up the the stadium going audience, then how are you going to deal with season tickets? Are you only going to charge them for what seventeen ma- or yeah eighteen matches if they're playing abroad? It it just becomes a whole mess, and we're dealing with all of that on the Tottenham side of things at the moment. And we will get into that uh, when I rant for a bit uh, when we round the table here in a little bit. Now, uh, to end this kind of opening segment, I just wanted to quickly go through some things that seem to be developing uh, in the Premier League and just get your take on if you think this is just kind of a blip that's going to go away sooner, or if you think it's a trend that may last the season or even longer. Um, this past weekend, at least three teams in the Premier League rolled out a 4-4-2 uh, 
which was a bit of a throwback. Do you think that's uh, going to start filtering back into the Premier League, or do you think it was just dealing with decimated squads, as we said, uh, post-World Cup? Wow, I think it's a, it's a hard question to answer, but I think that we will. I think we might see it more often than than the past seasons. Yeah, I think um, formations and tactics they're sort of cyclical, aren't they? So mm. things have a trend, and the back three was very trendy a couple of years ago. Chelsea won the league with the back three, then everyone else started playing with the back three. But once everyone else is playing in the same system, that system isn't an advantage anymore, is it? Because you start to cancel each other out. So I've got no doubt at all that four four two will come back into to fashion at some point. It was interesting today the game at the turf that Watford came and played with two up front and we didn't. Um when Burnley have been one of the teams that have been quite wedded to a to a four four two in recent years, we were actually playing with one up front and one behind. Um so yeah I think I think some teams will certainly go for it for certain games, but I think tactical flexibility and being able to play different systems, that's only going to increase. And I don't think we're going to see again where most teams are playing the same system. All right. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about wingbacks because they've tended to have uh, an increasing popularity of late. But not only that, to start the season, they've had in- an increasing effectiveness in goal scoring. Eight clubs already have had a goal or assist come from their wingbacks. Manchester City have four. Uh, let's see, it's three goals and at least 15-plus assists already. Do you think that the dependence on width coming from your defense instead of from your uh, front three or however you're setting up is, is something that's going to continue, or do you think it's just here for a little bit? I think we will see. I think, think it will continue because if you're going back to the last summer, Manchester City spent lots of money on wingbacks and uh, they developed their games quite a lot on doing so and uh, when Liverpool found uh, Andrew Robertson to play on the left side of the defense instead of Alberto Moreno our game developed a lot and you can see that in the first game against uh, West Ham what he meant to us and it's the same way with um, Trent Alexander-Arnold so um, I think that um, the usage of wingbacks in the, the attacking part of the game will I think it will grow, uh, especially in the teams uh, at the top of the table. So um, I think it's here to stay for now. Yeah, I agree. I think just just one little thing to add to this, really. City's a really good example because, obviously, they did spend all the money on fullbacks last season and sometimes they play with a four, sometimes they play with a three at the back. Um, but I think tactical trends are quite often... They come in and out of fashion on the back of... Sometimes it can just be one player sort of revolutionising one position and everyone thinks they have to have someone to do this. And I think this season, Benjamin Mendy's got the potential to do that and sort of redefine what a wing-back is, um, certainly for the Premier League, if not for European football. The fact that he's so attacking, so powerful and quick and aggressive and he's a goal threat, he does everything almost that you'd expect from from a winger, but from an ostensibly defensive position. And he can actually defend some. And he can defend as well. He's not just got the pace to get him out of trouble. He is good defensively one-on-one, you're right. So I think a player like Mendy, a lot of clubs are going to see how City have got that double threat now. Last season, they could be a bit one-sided, a bit too reliant on going down the right where they had Walker. But now the fact they've got someone on both sides who can do that job, I think a lot of clubs will be looking at whether they can replicate that. But they're not going to be able to replicate it to the same degree because there's only so many players like Benjamin Mendy out there and they cost an awful lot of money. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. 
Um, the next one is uh, a lot of the big clubs have already seen significant rotation. City have done it. United have done it. Tottenham have done it. I think Arsenal were largely the same. Um, do you think this is just post-World Cup, or do you think that with the sizes of squads ever increasing, that we're just going to start to see less and less of established 11s in the Premier League? Yeah, I think we will see a lot of more, a lot more of the rotation this season, because I think many of the teams in Premier League will have a, a bigger chance to go somewhere in Europe. And the past, in the past five or six years, the Premier League teams have been out of the European competition quite early, and uh, then basically most relying on uh, the starting 11 in the league. Uh, but um, if you look at a team like Liverpool, um, we bought players like uh, Shaqiri, who is, uh, he is maybe a player for the starting 11, but uh, he's, not, uh, he's not quite there yet. But he will play many games. And it's the same with players like Jordan Henderson, James Milner, who's not, who's not a true starting 11 player nowadays. But... Um, Every team at the top six has uh, quite a big squad, and they and that is because they need it. They need it to go somewhere in Europe, and they need it to to be competitive in the league, and in bo- both of the cups. So, um, of course, uh, since it's been World Cup, the players are a bit more tired than before. So, maybe we'll see it more often this season. But um, I think, um, especially the top six teams, we will see many players play many games, and not just the starting eleven. Yeah, the the World Cup's obviously a factor. There's a lot of players who who aren't fully fit yet. They've had disrupted pre-seasons and they're still getting back up to full speed. So I think it will settle down a little bit. Um, but then I think towards the end of the season, if you've got clubs that are still involved in Europe, like Burnley, I think it's inevitable that teams start to rotate a bit more at that point. I think what will be interesting is if if some clubs managed to get the benefit of a settled team that's one of the things that Burnley have done really well over the last couple of seasons you can pretty much name nine ten players who are going to play more often than not that's obviously going to change for us with with the European commitments that we've got at the moment but it'll be interesting if there's a similar team that comes up on the rails a little bit by doing that and having pretty much the same 11 very similar team week in week out everyone knowing their jobs Everyone's extremely well drilled. It can be predictable to play against, but I think there's there's a lot to be said for having having a team that knows each other inside out as well. All right, and we'll end with one that's less of a tactical thing and more of just a they're starting to come to Premier League clubs more. Obviously, Ederson last year kind of brought in this, uh, and you said, uh, Jamie, that, that clubs tend to react to one player that kind of revolutionizes a position. Ederson's distribution was so ridiculous last season that it seems like a lot of clubs have tried to match that. Liverpool bringing in Allison, Chelsea bringing in Kepa. Uh, do you think that more clubs are going to try to bring in this kind of goalkeeper? I, I always thought it was very interesting that when Guardiola got rid of Hart uh, for Bravo, he mentioned that if your goalkeeper can't pass, then you're playing with just 10 men. Um, and it seems like that's kind of catching on in the Premier League now. Yeah, if you wanna if you wanna play from the back, you need a goalkeeper who can use their feet. We've seen it early in Liverpool. The difference between having Alisson at the back and uh, Mignolia, who is not very good at his feet. Um, so um, I think, uh, especially the teams who really want to play from the back, will start to trying to find goalkeepers that they can use as an extra player. Because um, especially since the wing backs start quite high up on the pitch. And uh, maybe the central defender is not 
every central defender is uh, good at passing the ball up through up through the pitch. So I think, uh, as I said before, we've uh, we've used it a lot with Alisson already, and I think that we will use it even more when he's when he's more used to playing in the Premier League. And uh, I won't be surprised to see more teams try to find the kind of goalkeeper who can be a, like an um, outfield player when the team has the ball. Yeah, I think this this is definitely a, a tactical evolution that's probably more of a this is here to stay and this is how it's going to be now than, than some of the other ones that we've talked about. Um, I think the interesting thing with this one is going to be can older goalkeepers adapt or is it going to now be that you need to be young to be a goalkeeper because you need to have come up playing the ball out from the back, being comfortable on the ball, using both feet. Um Someone like Petr Cech, who I've already mentioned, he's shown that he's extremely uncomfortable doing it. Is he able to adapt to this new way of playing, or is it going to be a case of the experience of goalkeepers that used to be so valued? Like, mid-30s was nothing for a goalkeeper. You could keep going until you was getting towards 40. Is that going to be a thing of the past? And now now it's all about these, these hot new things. You haven't even played international football much a lot of the time, but they're valued because of the fact that they can play not just short passes out from the back and keep the possession, but accurate long balls to beat the press as well. I think that's something that Edison did to great effect last season. Allison's already shown that he's capable of doing that as well. So it's not just being able to keep keep possession under pressure. I don't know if you saw to Stegen last night playing for Barcelona came out and made a, a mockery of an attacking player by just sort of chipping the ball around <laughs> him and then played a pass to the outside of his feet. I, I, I don't know. I'm sort of torn on this because... I don't know if this is something that all goalkeepers are going to be able to do. So I think it might be the case that, like Thomas was saying, the bigger clubs, the cities who, who were so firmly wedded to that style that it has to be done that way. Liverpool are getting to be that way as well. And then you might get a club like, I don't know, to pick someone at random, Huddersfield, who aren't that bothered about being able to play out from the back and it's not going to be that important for them. I think the balance is going to be really key for this. Kepper already we've seen the most expensive goalkeeper in world history now made a bad mistake for the, yeah. the first Arsenal goal. He should have saved it. Is there any point in having a goalkeeper that's really under passing the ball if they can't keep it out of their own net? Surely yeah. the primary job is still going to be doing that. So I think there's a balance to be struck. Whether it goes too far in one direction first and for these goalkeepers who are almost outfielders and then people go, hang on a minute, he's letting in far too many shots and then go some more shot-stop-attack goalkeepers. I think that's going to be really interesting to watch over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think it's really interesting um, for both of us, Jamie, because you have a lot of very good shot-stoppers at your club, three now, who have worn the, or who have started for England. Pretty sure all three of them have done that now. Um, and then for us, we have Hugo Lloris, who is a very kind of classical... I mean, he'll come out early, but he's, he's not a distributor. And so it'll be interesting to see where they fit in the hierarchy of this kind of new era of goalkeeper. And like you said, are, are clubs going to try to push them that direction or just maybe it's good enough to have a goalkeeper that stops shots if, as you say, yeah. this, this trend is brings really out a lot of passing goalkeepers and, that can. And I, I think for us, obviously it's terrible news for, for Nick Pope that he could be out for four months, people say now, so it could be sort of January, February before he's back. But this is a really good opportunity for him to add something to his game. Mm. No club that Nick Pope's ever been at has asked him to do this, to play out from the back. And as a result, his distribution is poor. For a Premier League goalkeeper, his distribution is poor. This is a chance for him to work on something 
added new dimensions to his game. And I think the goalkeepers that we've seen going for big money, they can all do that. The reason Jordan Pickford cost thirty million last summer, which in the context of this summer's fees doesn't look as ludicrous as he did a year ago, is that he's comfortable on the ball. If Nick Pope can do that, suddenly Burnley have got a goalkeeper who's worth thirty million pounds. So if someone at the club has got nice about them, they'll be encouraging Pope to do this, whether or not it fits into our style play or not, because it'll make him more valuable and it'll give him more of a career at the very top level. Yeah, it'll be interesting, certainly, to see how all of these things develop, and maybe we'll check in later in the season and see which one of these are still sticking around. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with questions for each of our guests. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, and we are back. Uh, Thomas, we'll start talking a little bit of Liverpool with you. Um, Now, we have a lot less information about Liverpool than the rest of the clubs because you have played just once in the Premier League thus far. Um, But obviously, there was a whole uh, Lovren injury stomach thing uh, that that started right before the season. So Joe Gomez got the start at center back. Now, you've used him at center back and right back, but he looked fairly good in that first match and has shown promise in the past. Do you think there's any chance that he ends up as your number one center back? Uh, yeah, I think it, it's um, quite a big chance that he will be the guy playing next to Van Dijk. Because, oh, right. uh, yeah, not number one. <laughs> the one next to Van Dijk. <laughs> yeah, because um, he is a centre-back. You could see that when he played as a right-back as well, because um, he was, he, you could see he wasn't very used to playing at the right. Now that he has played in the centre of the defence, he's looked quite good. He missed a few offsides um, against West Ham, but... Uh, but he he sorted them out himself. So he's quick, he's strong, and he's good at the ball. So I think he's he can be a good player to put next to Van Dijk. But um, I think a lot of it depends on uh, Dejan Lovren's injury because um, he was the number one next to Van Dijk last season, and he had a great World Cup. So I think that going into the season, Klopp Klopp had um, Van Dijk and Lovren as the starting. Uh, center backs but um, if Gomez uh, keeps on playing like he did against uh, West Ham and maybe gets a bit uh, more uh, natural partnership with uh, Van Dijk I wouldn't be surprised to see him play more games than Lovren this season because I think that uh, the injury that uh, Lovren got was a bit of a surprise for um, for the team as well 
he spoke in an interview that he was ready to go when he came back from uh, the World Cup, and then a few days later he was injured. So maybe um, maybe that has made uh, Klopp a bit more uh, uh, maybe a bit angry uh, because uh, we're a bit short on centre backs now that uh, Klavan has left, and we know that uh, Matip is very injury prone. So um, we need Lovren fit, and uh, since he coming back from a World Cup injured. And leaving us with uh, only Van Dijk and Gomez was not what the uh, club wanted to hear. We can play Fabinho at the center of the defense as well if one of um, Van Dijk and Gomez is injured. But I don't. I, we need him higher up in the pitch. And then it leaves us with uh, Nathaniel Phillips, and he is not a Premier League player. Uh, so um, the injury of Dejan Lovren was uh, not what club wanted to hear after the World Cup. And I think that. Uh, Maybe it's a blessing in disguise for Joe Gomez. And um, it will be interesting to see him against uh, Crystal Palace tomorrow because to play like uh, to play Christian Benteke is uh, it's usually very hard if you're a Liverpool defender. He's a, he's a goal scorer when he plays against <laughs> us. He wasn't a goal scorer when he played for us. But um, when he plays against us, he's very dangerous. And if Joe Gomez can show that he is, uh, he's ready to face Christian Benteke, then uh, maybe Dejan Lovren will have to will have to wait for his chance to get back in the team. Yeah, Dejan Lovren saying something in the media that he immediately regrets, I, I can't even imagine that happening. Um, after, <laughs> <laughs> he's always like, I'm the best defender in the world right before I face Killian and Bop. There's no way that'll, that'll come back yeah. to bite me. Um, he's best when he's silent. <laughs> He's not as silent as he should be then. Um, (laughs) The other uh, thing I wanted to bring up about Liverpool is um, you're starting to send out a lot more of your players on loan. Grujic, the most recent, sounds like Origi, could be sorting something with Borussia Dortmund as we record. You also sent out Woodburn, who's who's very highly rated. Which of those players are you expecting to really develop the best either on loan or when they come back to Liverpool? Uh, The player out on loan that I'm looking forward most to watch is... uh, Ben Woodburn, because I think that he played really well on the in the preseason. He looked more, um, he looked like an adult now. He looked like a kid last season. He was uh, built some muscles and uh, played very smart in the midfield when he's got the chance. So he's at Sheffield United now, and I hope that he gets a lot of game time so that he can uh, that he can develop. I think it's good that he's in uh, in Championship, so he can maybe grow some more muscles and get stronger in the midfield. Uh, and uh, yeah, I really think that the he can benefit from the loan. Uh, Marko Grujic, I was hoping for him to be a to be a player for the first team for this season. He's 22 years old now, so he need to he need to show something when he's on loan now in Germany. That uh, he's he's only one year younger than Nabiketa, and he's miles away from him in abilities. He's um, two years younger than Fabinho, and he's not nowhere near him as well. So. He need to have a really, really good year if uh, he doesn't want to be sold next summer. And um, we have two players with uh, Steven Gerrard in Glasgow Rangers as well, in Ovi Ajaria and Ryan Kent. I'm not so sure that they will uh, come back as Liverpool players, but I think that Steven Gerrard is uh, is a good player to is a, is a good coach to have for our younger players because he knows he knows them from the youth teams and so so. Maybe they will develop, but I don't don't think that they are Liverpool players in the future. If um, it's it's when Ben Woodburn from the players who are out on loan that I think we will see in Liverpool in the upcoming years. 
Yeah, we'll definitely need to keep an eye on them. Uh, Coming to you now, Jamie, to discuss Burnley things. Uh, You have now advanced through another round of the Europa League. Um, Glamorous football sure didn't seem to be. It's hard to say because it wasn't televised anywhere. Um, (laughs) But you have advanced now again. How exciting is that for you? And are you looking forward to the matches against Olympiacos? I think it's very exciting. The, The concern for me when we qualified was that we wouldn't really give it a proper go. Um, and for me, that would have been a real disappointment if if qualify for Europe for the first time in fifty years and then really don't make the most of it. I think that would have been a real concern. Then the fact that we drew Aberdeen and it, it wasn't really a European game; it was very much like an English cup tie that match. Um, and obviously, you didn't get to go abroad, so everyone was really hopeful that we could progress from that one to get a proper European trip, and then. Um, to get through the Istanbul tie, I think, showed a lot about where this team is up to. Um, Istanbul beat Sevilla in the Champions League playoff rounds last season, so they're obviously a useful outfit. A lot of the, the well-known players are getting on a bit. Adebayor, Gal Clichy, there's mid-30s now, they've not really got the legs. Um, and Adebayor, fortunately for us, wasn't really fit enough to... He didn't play at all in the first leg. Came off the bench for about half an hour in the second leg. Didn't really look fit. So I think that was a bit lucky for us. But the fact that we were able to come through both ties despite having to go through the extra time, I think showed a lot about the character and the grit and the determination that we've seen from from this team over the last couple of seasons. And the success that we had in getting seventh last season seems to have, have given us this drive and determination to really make the most out of what we have to assume is a sort of once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation sort of opportunity. So Olympiacos is going to be tough. I'm not going to pretend that I know a lot about them. I don't watch much any Greek football. The fact that they finished third in the Greek league last season when you consider to be Olympiacos to be champions more often than not is perhaps an opportunity for us. Um, I think both legs will probably be quite similar to the Istanbul one, to be honest, Will try and drag them down to our level. Ashley Barnes will have a very important role to play in that time. Doing that will try and make it scrappy and ugly and difficult to watch and play in. And I think if we're in the tie, get them back at the turf, I think we've got as good a chance as any to, to get through to the knockout route, to the group stage even, and that would be a fantastic achievement and really give us the, the proper European adventure that we've been craving. Yeah, simultaneously, um, no points in the Premier League. Is that just because you think the focus point, is on the Europa one League? Point. Oh, one yeah, you did think of a point. Southampton was a draw. That is correct. <laughs> Research. <laughs> do you think it is down? To, is, do you think it is down to that kind of Europa League curse that people talk about, though? No, I don't think so. Um, I think we're probably a bit unlucky not to win at Southampton. Really, we had a goal very borderline rolled out for offside. I think it was probably just about level. It should have counted. Southampton didn't really have that many opportunities. Both goalkeepers were the best players on the pitch, which tells you a lot about the way the game went. Um, but I think we probably had the, the clearer opportunities overall. And if we'd have had the goal that we scored that was disallowed, then that puts in position to go and win it. I think a point away is always a, a decent foundation to start with. I think today's game was maybe a, a little bit different. It's, it's difficult to assess this one because our record at the start of the season at home is terrible. Last season, we lost at home to West Brom and they didn't beat anyone last season and we still finished seventh. So I don't think there's any need to panic. Um, 
but there was a bit of a worrying lack of fight, I think, was the, the main concern for me in the second half. You can, can see bad goals, and you can look like you're going to lose games, but it's how you respond to that. And for the last half an hour, it just looked like they'd given up, really. And I don't think that's acceptable in any match. It's certainly not acceptable when you're playing for Sean Dyche, who demands maximum effort all the time. That's one of his mantras. That's maximum effort is the minimum expectation, something like that. So the fact that players just didn't look like they wanted to try and get back into the game, that's the worst thing to say about football is for me that they're not trying. And I don't say it lightly at all, but I, I don't think they were trying and that's really, really annoying. Um, that said, for me, the Europa League is the priority at the moment. Like I say, first time in 51 years we've been in Europe, that so you have to give it a proper go. Um, some of these players had played 120 minutes on Thursday, so they're probably a bit tired, maybe protecting themselves a little bit for Olympiacos on Thursday. I don't know if that's the case. So I think it's tricky. Watford also played really well. It's, it's not fair for for us to just sit here and say how oh, Burnley at home to Watford, they should get a result there. Watford were very good. They played quite a lot like us in a way, pressing high up the pitch, cleaning cold, taking their chances. Very Burnley last season in their away performance. So they just played better than us on, on the day, really. We gave away slop, sloppy goals, didn't really create anything. Um, but I don't think it's the Europa League hangover. I think it's more to do with the fact that some of our better players are missing. Robbie Brady hasn't really... I know we're going to come on to this later in the show, but Brady's not played yet. Stephen Defoe's not played yet. Probably our two best creative players and they've not played any part yet this season. So there's certainly no reason to panic. It's a long, old season. With two games in, we've got a point. It could be worse. So, yeah, I'm not too upset in the minute. And for me, like I say, I think Thursday's the big game this week anyway. So certainly take getting tubbed at home by Watford if we get through the Olympiacos tie. Yeah, and one last uh, one for you, especially on uh, the fantasy side. People are always wonder who is going to start up front for Burnley. You kind of had a rotation last year with Barnes and Wood, and folks even got some minutes at times. And now you bring in Matty Vidra, who had the most goals in the championship uh, last season. How do you see that the front line for you, whether it be one or two, uh, developing throughout the season? I'm not sure, really. It's it's actually the second season in a row that we signed the top scorer in the championship, so it's clearly a market that we're comfortable in and being familiar with these players obviously Vidra's played for Watford where Dash had managed I don't think they crossed over but players that we'll be familiar with um, I think the interesting thing with Vidra compared to the others is he's more of a 10 than a 9 I think the other three that we've got are probably all 9s really they want to lead the line they want to battle in the air with defenders they want to win those balls and get on the end of crosses I don't think Vidra's going to be like that um, so I, I think it gives us flexibility really we've seen quite a lot in the last year that Dash has sort of switched from the 4-4-2 to more of a 4-4-1-1 Jeff Hendrick's been playing as the 10 um, and he's not really any definition of a 10 think of a classic 10 they need to be a goal threat they need to be comfortable on both sides they can go either way they need to be creative they need to have good vision and Hendrick's much more of a win second balls and maybe get the odd goal type of number 10. He's he's very much a third midfielder rather than a second striker, if that makes sense. So I think Vidra will be an upgrade on Hendrick if we decide to play like that. 
but I think it depends on on the European run. I think we are going to have to rotate a lot if we are going to be playing Thursday, Sunday. Um, if we get to the group stage, it's going to be a challenge. There'll be some players who probably play Europa League games and don't really play Premier League games. Phil Bartley's probably one of those. I think he was really good in both legs of the Istanbul tie. I'd expect him to play again um, in Athens on Thursday. And I think players like John Walters, Averroes playing in Europe as well. So for fantasy advice, I don't know. <laughs> I think Chris Wood is probably the first choice starting striker. Whether they choose to save him for some games, play him in others, then that remains to be seen. Um, good months, and I know you're a fan of in, in those terms, yeah. and he delivered again with a, a really good corner for our goal. So I think he's he's an interesting one. In the absence of Brady and Defoe, he's really taken on the mantle as our main creative player. All right, uh, now I'm going to rant about Tottenham for a little bit. Um, I'm sure everyone has seen and made at least one joke on Twitter about uh, Tottenham Stadium being delayed. And uh, I will say some qualifiers. First, it is not surprising that a big construction project hit snags. Um, It is not surprising that the club built in basically an extra month of uh, period with the talks with the FA that everybody was talking about were secret, even though that was done over the summer, uh, about potentially exten- extending their stay at Wembley. And also, for as impartial as the fixture computer is meant to be, Tottenham only ever had two home ske- home fixtures scheduled before October 28th. So I think there was a little bit of a favorable thing going on there as well. So there's this buffer built in as well. The issue is the fan base. Because they sold season tickets with everybody thinking that the stadium was going to be ready. Um, They've now offered back uh, vouchers for each match not played there. But this is clearly, from my eyes, they have planned very much so as if it will not be ready on time. While telling everybody it would be ready on time. And you add that to the transfer window. Where not only was there nobody signed, there was also very little activity. And... Fans are understandably wondering what on earth was happening at the board level over the whole summer. How how did we fall so far behind on the stadium and then also not notice that we should probably add a player or two in the summer? And the main issue is that the fans feel lied to and betrayed. They feel as if the club has prioritized everyone but the fans in this stadium and also the people that are in that area are also feeling a bit taken advantage of and that's not new stadiums tend to bring this they bring hope and promise but they tend to kind of suck up some of the resources and revenue around the area more than really splaying it out the way literally every club tends to claim that it'll do to the area that it'll revitalize everything um but the club have damaged a lot of the goodwill that they've earned over the last few years by how they've been run by the development of the team um, bringing in Pochettino and seeing everything that he's done Uh, so they had they had built up a lot of goodwill with the fan base and they are burning through it very quickly um, by splitting up fans in the new stadium um, because they changed where seats were they changed where fan groups were Um, just almost every time they they had like a option to make it better for the fans and maybe add a little cost to the project, they chose to save costs every time. And Daniel Levy is the CEO of a company. So cutting costs is not a surprise. But if you're going to make it all about the project and say that you're cutting costs, everything you're doing is to meet deadlines and stuff like that, then you have to actually do it. Because otherwise, you've just alienated 
your clientele, and your fan base. And I recognize that ticket receipts are now such a small percentage of club revenue that they largely don't matter in the eye of uh, the owners of these clubs and the chairman of these clubs. But it can extend. It can start to become a poison within the fan base. Uh, And I think Daniel Levy in particular is walking a very fine line right now. All right, rant over. Now we're going to head into Player Watch, where we're going to be discussing injured players at our clubs that could come back and make a significant impact on our club seasons. We'll start with you, Thomas, and Liverpool. Yeah, we've been quite lucky with injuries so far this season. The big one is, of course, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Uh, he would be very useful in our midfield because he's a bigger threat going forward than players like Milner, Henderson, Vinaldum, and so on. So um, he will be a big loss because... Um, his injury will probably keep him away from the team for almost the whole season. If he can play this season, it's a, it's a bonus. So I don't think that he will have an impact for us. Um, we've had a few injuries with uh, in our central defenders. We touched on Lovren earlier. Matip has been a bit in, injured as well. But uh, I don't think it really matters who plays next to Van Dijk right now because as long as he plays the way he does it, I don't think we will uh, lose or win games based on if it's Lovren, Gomez, or Matip placed next to him. So um, the player that I think it's uh, interesting to follow this season is uh, Nathaniel Klein. He hasn't been injured for a while now, but he was away almost um, the whole last season. And uh, now he's had a good preseason, uh, played, played a few games, and uh, I think that he can push Trent Alexander-Arnold to get even better because it's easy to forget how good Klein was when he was fit before the injury and before... Trent Alexander-Arnold broke through. Uh, if he can uh, get back to the shape that he was two seasons ago, uh, maybe he can uh, he can push Alexander-Arnold to develop his defensive part of the game. Uh, I think that Nathaniel Klein is a bit underrated among Liverpool supporters, and I've read that some some of us uh, wants to see him leave the club. But I think that he will be a useful player for us, and um, me- I really think that he will be useful for Trent Alexander-Arnold because he can't play as much this season as he, that he did uh, last season. And um, since we want to play Joe Gomez in the center, we only have Alexander-Arnold and Klein, and we will need both of them good this season. So hopefully Klein will be the player who has, who has been dealing with an injury who can have a big impact for us. All right, and Jamie, you mentioned uh, earlier the, the impact that Robbie Brady could have when he makes his way back into the eleven. Is that the player that you think could really turn things around for you? Uh, certainly one of them, yeah. I think um, Aaron Lennon has, has done all right since coming in, but I'd, I'd like to see a bit more of him, really. He's had a couple of chances in some of the games that we've had already early this season and not really taken them. I don't think he's really got that goal threat from wide that we need. Brady's obviously a big threat from set pieces, although we've got that with Gun Munson. I think it gives us maybe a bit more balance if we had Gun Munson on one side, Brady on the left, even though they're both left foot. I think that's it just looks a bit more balanced than having having Lennon in the side. And I think Aaron Lennon as a as a substitute winger, that's that's top for a team like Burnley to be able to put Lennon on for half an hour and try and change the game with some pace. So I think Brady coming back to full fitness, hopefully that's not too far away. There's some talk that there's another 23s game on Monday that he might play some part in. For me, the sooner he's back, the better, because we are short of a wing. I probably should have signed one over the, the summer transfer window, really. Um, the other player for me, massively important for us, is Stephen DeFore. Unfortunately, it seems like his injury problems are just going to continue. Um, 
we knew when we signed him that he was a bit injury prone. He'd had knee problems that had rolled him out for substantial periods. And unfortunately, we've seen the same when he's, he's been playing for us. When he's available and when he's fit, he's fantastic. He's probably our best player, but he's, he's just not available enough. There's totally still weeks away from being able to play any reserve team football. So it could be Christmas for Stephen Defoe's back and that's that's a real blow for us because he, he revolutionises our play really if we're going to play with a three-man midfield Stephen Defoe has the vision and creativity that nobody else really has in our team so I think if we were able to field a team that had Defoe Brady Goodmanson behind a striker whether that was Ward or Barnes or Volks or Vidro or whoever I think that's that's suddenly a very dangerous front four it's just a question of being able to field all those players at once um, last season our a win ratio when Defoe was fit and available was superb and when he wasn't, it was terrible. So it has a massive impact on our play and if we got to a situation where Defoe's going to miss most of the season, I think that pushes us down from potentially being able to contest for a top half finish again, depending on European commitments, everything's got this caveat of what happens in Europe, how many more games we play in Europe. But I think we've got the potential to go and do that again, finish in the top half if everyone's fit and available. If Defoe's not available, if Brady's going to miss more time, that suddenly starts to look like Burnley are going to lack creativity, therefore not scoring enough goals, therefore potentially get sucked into a relegation battle. So those two players are absolutely crucial. It looks like Brady's on the comeback trail, so touch wood, he's going to be back sooner rather than later. But big concerns over Stephen Defoe for me because he's our key player, and if he's not going to be available, then it could be a long year for us. Yeah, um, for Tottenham, we actually just got uh, two of them back in Winks and Lamella, both of whom could play very big roles for us. Lamella got the assist on the Kane goal. Um, and then uh, Winks, the, the issue with us having to sign a central midfielder all summer was based on the kind of understanding that both Dembele and Winks have had injury issues. And if we lose both of them, then we're playing Sissoko or a youth player in the first team. Uh, probably to equal amounts of success. Um, and But mm-hmm. if, if Winks can really get back and fit, that's huge for us. The one remaining that I'm very excited about is Victor Wanyama. I think because of his injuries and the fact that when he tried to come back, he didn't play that well, people forget what an imperious force he can be in central midfield, um, just breaking up everything in front of him. Um, Eric Dyer, for me, is still primarily a center back, even though Pochettino very much disagrees. Um but I think that's where he's best, and he has adapted well to this midfield role, considering it's not his natural position. Um, but having Wanyama in there just as a rock allows everybody else to stay forward, and he just cleans up everything behind them. Um, he, he doesn't try to be audacious with a pass. Sometimes you'll see Dyer trying to whip out these huge cross-field balls, which worked against Fulham because Brian could not keep track of Lucas for his entire life. Um, but all in all, I, I think Victor Wanyama in our starting eleven takes us from you know, trying to make top four to a team that very few people will want to play either in the Premier League or in the Champions League this season. So uh, not a flair player, obviously, but I think Victor Wanyama's presence in our midfield uh, is sorely missed. And when he finally comes back and is fit, he'll just remind everybody how good he is uh, in his role for Tottenham. All right, we actually have enough time uh, left for match previews, which is a pretty rare occurrence here on the show. Um, So we'll lead in uh, once more with you, Thomas, talking about Liverpool versus Brighton. Of course, Brighton coming off their their win against your rivals, Manchester United. Yeah, uh, I was impressed with Brighton today when I watched them against Manchester United. But um, 
I wasn't very impressed with Manchester United, so maybe it was more more a case of them not being very good than uh, it was a case of Brighton being very good. But uh, this is, of course, a game that we uh, have to win. As I recall, we beat them quite easily the last uh, last season, both home and away. And uh, if we want to be a serious threat to Manchester City, we need to we need to win at Anfield, and especially against a team like Brighton, who is probably gonna be fighting at the bottom of the table. Um, it w- we have a weird game tomorrow against Crystal Palace, and uh, I think that that is uh, that should be a tougher game than uh, Brighton at home. And uh, if we win those two games, it's a very good start for us because uh, then we're going into Leicester away and Tottenham away, and uh, it would be it would be nice to have nine points from the first three. And against Brighton at home, I think that both uh, Salah and uh, Mania will uh, look to score some goals. And uh, maybe it's time for uh, Firmino to score his first as well. Uh, I think we scored nine goals in two games against Brighton last season. And um, I'm quite confident that we will win this game, and it's not very often that I'm confident of a Liverpool win, so I guess that uh, the chances are on our side. All right, and Jamie, uh, you've got double fixtures again, which you've been having to do a lot here at the start of the season, as you have Olympiacos before Fulham at at the end of the week. Uh, How are you preparing for those? Yeah, I think it's going to be another tough week, really. The slog of playing every Thursday to try and get into the group stage might catch us up catch up with us at some point um hopefully it won't be this week i think dash as upset as i was when i saw some of the teams that he's named this season he probably just about got it right for the istanbul game to be honest um players like phil bardsley seem seem really well suited for how we need to play in these european games um so i think someone like bardsley might well play again on thursday there'll be changes in attack um, i expect Barnes to come back in so i think the challenge for us is getting used to making five six changes a game which a lot of other clubs do as standard but it's not something we've ever done under dice it's very much been it's your shirt until you mess up and then it's not your shirt anymore so even when players have come back to full fitness, they've had to wait for someone to make a mistake for them to get back in a lot of the time. So the fact that we are having to make all these changes week in, week out is is it's a big challenge. Um, I suspect, like I said earlier, the Olympiacos cost game, if it's not available to watch, that might be best for everyone, judging off the first leg of the Istanbul game, which I did manage to see. It was pretty terrible. <laughs> it was sort of Cardiff v Newcastle, but worse so um, yeah I fully expect us to go out there and try and spoil our way to a nil-nil draw um, Fulham coming back it's early days in the season but it's it's a big game for us now you can't take one point from your first two games and not have a big game so the fact that Fulham has struggled a bit so far I think they've got the challenge of they've signed all these eye-catching new players players like Seri who's apparently going to Barcelona a year ago and he's rocked up at Fulham now. It's a very strange deal. But you bring too many players in and you sort of lose the essence of what the team's all about, I think. And I suspect that's maybe what Fulham, maybe a mistake that Fulham have made that have done too much in one summer. Um, so I think while all their new players are bedding in, I think it's a good chance for us to go there. We played really well at Southampton, created plenty, probably should have won. 
So I think if we can keep enough players fresh to, to go to Craven College, we've got a really good chance of getting our first win in the season, hopefully there, although to be honest, I'd probably take a draw because a point on the road is, is never to be sniffed at and hopefully we're just in the tie for the Olympiacos game because you really just want to be in with a chance when it comes to the second leg of these games. Yeah, it will be really interesting to see what happens with your Europa League thing because people talk about how much a drain it can be on your season and that's when they qualify automatically and don't have to go through these multiple rounds. Um, but hopefully, uh, as you say, hopefully it'll be A, a more exciting match and B, hopefully you'll pick up uh, the win against Olympiacos there and then best of luck at Fulham. I would suggest attacking them down the right they have no idea what they're doing over there. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Tottenham, of course, are going to be playing Manchester United on the other end of that loss to Brighton, obviously. Uh, the late penalty makes the scoreline look a lot more flattering than the performance really was, um, as they it ended up being 3-2. Um, I simultaneously believe that that was already the beginning of the end for Mourinho, there's not going to be any way that they turn things back around. Tottenham are just going to walk this one, and it's going to be glorious. But I thought that last season, right before the um, Manchester City match between City and United, and then obviously they overturned um, City and then ended up just kind of strolling through the rest of the season, finishing second. I thought they were going to really uh, hit the skid marks there. Um, so we'll see. They they may just come out and absolutely torch us on some kind of revenge kick after the, the match against Brighton. Um, you'd assume Alexis would be back, although we don't really have full news, to my knowledge, of uh, what caused him to miss out. I, I know uh, he didn't end up traveling with them, um, but this does not look a very good side at the moment. Obviously, good individual players, and on their day, can you know any of them can really turn a match on its head. But uh, I'm not overly concerned right now, which is concerning in and of itself. But all in all, uh, I do think we'll be able to crank out a win. Um, we finally really got the gears going against Fulham. Kane breaking that uh, August quote-unquote hoodoo is nice. Um, Lucas looks fantastic, as we kind of predicted ever since we signed him, that he was really more of a signing for this season than the six months he got last season after we brought him in in January. Um, but getting Toby Alderweireld back is obviously huge for us. Uh, if he does actually stay, which I've been basically saying all summer that it continued to look like he might actually just be stuck here and we'll just have to deal with the fact that he's going to leave for 25 million in the summer that's fine because we didn't sign anybody so having a player of his caliber uh selectable by pochettino is obviously huge for us um so yeah think think uh we'll win and i can't wait to have to record next week after i'm proven horribly wrong um but that will do it for us today so if you would like to tell anybody uh where they could find you or which projects you're working on now be a good time Thanks for listening. I'm I'm uh, Thomas Nygren. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Nygren. I also write about Liverpool for lfcsv.se. We um, have a podcast that's out uh, about once or twice a month. And uh, right now we're planning a special episode for the game against Tottenham where we will be joined by uh, the former Tottenham uh, wingback Eric Edman who will mm. talk about his time at uh, Spurs. So... Too bad it's in Swedish, but um, that's what we're doing right now. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. I've been Jamie Smith. Um, I support Burnley, but cover the Premier League European football for a company called Omni Sport News. Frequently plug my stuff on social media. My Twitter is Jamie Smith Sports if you wish to follow me on there. And don't worry, I've got a personal account where I bang on about Burnley. So it's not all Burnley tweets, honest. <laughs> it's true. I can vouch for that. I also am over at. Uh... Omnisport there with Jamie doing live text commentary. If you're interested in those such things, if you're interested in fantasy, I write over uh, at Goal. Uh, so check that out as well. Also, we have the fantasy and championship shows on this very channel as well. So be sure to check all of that out if you don't mind. Um, Jamie Thomas, absolute pleasure speaking with you guys today. Thanks for coming on. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you keep listening. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 